Here at City, we are processing through a uh, teaching that's entitled There and Back Again. The idea is, is that as a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, I think it's mission-critical that we understand the God of the Bible, that we understand the God not just of the Newer Testament as He's revealed through Jesus, but that we would understand God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, that we would understand all three. And so the idea of there and back again is we're looking at the Older Testament and how it connects and the connection between the Older and Newer Testaments because it's so important for our faith journey. I can honestly say that if we begin to understand more deeply the Older Testament, who Jesus is in the Newer Testament becomes so much more vibrant and rich and understandable. To not understand how the Older Testament connects with the Newer, as with the illustration's been said for several weeks, it would be similar to you meeting someone and saying, I really don't want to know anything about your past. Let's just start here and go forward. The truth of it is, that is impossible. You cannot have a relationship with a person unless you know their story, their history. And the same is true with God. Albeit it is true that Jesus is the full revelation and the fullest revelation of who God is. But to understand God through the Older Testament and the redemptive work of God throughout the centuries is mission critical for us as we follow Jesus. Now before I kind of move towards a sermon or preach a message that's focused on that, for some reason I just felt led to share kind of a brief anecdotal comment. And it's, it's this. This past week, I took some time off and I went away with my son who's going to be gone for the next four years. Um, he'll be home, but off and on, but he's moving away. And so he has a lawyer friend who owns a house near Asheville, North Carolina. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And he was scheduled to go there and spend some time alone with God and in prayer. And since he's not here, I'll tell you why I went. He said he was scared to be in the woods by himself. <laughs> so I said, all right, and I have friends that stepped up. I do multiple teachings every week around our community, and I had friends that stepped up and filled in. And so I went with my son, and we spent three and a half, four days just in prayer, in conversation, in preparation for what God's calling him to do and be. And I found myself really deeply reflecting just on my own life and my own call into ministry. And so in the midst of that, something surprised me. God began to impress on me again the original call that I had into ministry specifically to preach and teach. It surprised me. And please understand, preaching and teaching is a huge part of what pastoral ministry is, and I've never backed off of it. But what I found very uniquely was God was reaffirming and reconfirming the call to preach and teach and to make people aware of the entire redemption story of God as it begins in the book of Genesis and has this amazing culmination in the book of Revelation as God's fulfillment of His redemption of humankind is made complete. 
And so it kind of stunned me that God was confirming and really reaffirming that call. And so that call has always been something in my life that has filled me with a clear sense of God's grace and mercy. I want to say this. If God can call me, I'm telling you, He can call anyone. Anyone. When I stepped into ministry, I was a total introvert, and I did not like speaking in public. The first time I ever preached was on a Sunday night at a church, and there were about 10 people there. You want to know why the pastor was smart? He wasn't going to trust me to do damage beyond 10 of his people. But there was a guy up front, he, was a, he carried mail for a living. He works for the US, worked for the U.S. Postal Service. And about every two minutes, he'd say, you can do this. Literally, that, he was sitting right there. And as I dropped the ball and fumbled all over the place, he just kept saying, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And I semi got back on track by the end of the sermon. And here's what the pastor said when I was done preaching. He said, you ended well. But listen, when I was away with my son, God reaffirmed the importance of preaching and teaching the redemptive story of God. It is so humbling to think that God uses people to expand His kingdom. What a mystery that is for you and for me. You might not be called to pastor or preach and teach, but God has uniquely equipped you and called you to be someone that expands His kingdom. How humbling that is. How much grace, how much mercy God has to call us to be a part of what He's doing in this world. It still is a, just a divine mystery to me that God would use people, but specifically me. And I don't know why God wanted me to share that, but I felt impressed to do it. So it was either for the catharsis of my own soul, or maybe there's one person out there that that was meant for, that that would land on, and maybe God has been calling you to step out and to step into ministry. Now, what I know is whenever I talk like this, there's kind of a heaviness that hits. That's not my intention. So to bring a little bit of levity back into the room, I want to tell you kind of a humorous story about a messenger and a message, because who the messenger is and how the messengers deliver or the message is delivered matters. So there's a great humorous story that's often preached in pulpits, and it's a story about there was a car accident. And in the car accident, there was a man that was critically injured. And the sheriff of the town and those standing around the car wreck knew the man that was in critical condition. And they knew that his wife was frail and given to big emotional swings. So they knew whoever was sent to tell her what had happened, that it was important to pick the right person. And so there at the scene of the accident, the sheriff picked this young guy and said, look, would you, he dispatched him and just some guy, and he said, would you go please tell Mrs. Smith what has happened? So he climbed up onto her front porch, and he knocked on the screen door, and the inside door opened, and there stood Mrs. Smith. And she said, hello, can I help you? 
And he said, are you Widow Smith? And she said, no, I'm Mrs. Smith. And he said, that's what you think. How you share a story matters. And who gets sent to deliver the message matters, does it not? This morning, I'm going to talk to us about something that needed a tiny bit of levity before we went into it. And it's this. We're going to take a look together at the Trinity in the Older Testament. That's what we're going to do. It's going to be brief. It's going to be somewhat of a meet and greet, just like you guys did a few moments ago. We call that time where you high-five, hug, and handshake. That's what we call meet and greet. But here's what I know is we have a lot of people at City who are new to faith. And the Older Testament is something that's a huge mystery to you. And so this morning what I'm going to do is introduce you to three people. And these three people embody the Trinity in the Older Testament. But before we go there, and we look at the Trinity in the Older Testament, really what you need to understand is Trinity is not a biblical word. It's a word that simply means tri-unity. Three in one. And there's the Father. There's the Son. And there's the Holy Spirit. What you will find in the Trinity, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, but in the Trinity, there is a loving, cohesive unity between what's called the Godhead, the Trinity, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in total relational love and unity, and through that, God expresses Himself into this world. But we're going to take again just a brief overview of the Older Testament. I'm going to introduce you to three people. But here's something that I think is important to understand. This is key. When we look at the Older Testament, we are blessed to read backwards into the Older Testament. Because we know the Jesus of the Newer Testament. And so when you read it backwards and you read back into it, the message of the Older Testament comes alive because here's what I want to tell you. The Old Testament writers did not fully understand what they were writing when they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They knew God had inspired them. They knew that they were prophesying into the future. But many of them, almost none of them, would have understood exactly what they were pointing towards, although when they were writing down their prophetic realities and God was moving in them and through them, they were filled in that moment. But we have the luxury of looking back into the Older Testament and doing what theologians call reading it backwards. Reading backwards. Now, for our brief little meet and greet. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And in Genesis chapter 1, 26, many of us are reading through the Bible this year. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you read a verse that is amazing. And here's what the verse says when God is going through the process of creating the world. In Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said... Let us, 
make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then you read on. And that sentence, that scriptural verse is absolutely stunning. Because what do you see there? You see a plural God. You see a God that says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Next week, I'm going to talk a lot more about what it means to be created in God's image. But this week, just to suffice it to say that God is speaking within the Godhead while He creates humankind. I don't know if you've ever overheard a conversation and when you do, something strikes you. That's how that verse hits me. Whether you overhear two people talking or you're talking with someone and they say something that shocks you. And when they say it, you think to yourself, did they just say that? And because of that simple phrase, or because of what was just briefly mentioned, suddenly what happens is you kind of begin to recalibrate your view of that person for better or for worse. But there's something that just slips into a conversation. And when you hear it, you go, oh my goodness, did they just say that? And then after that, your view of them changes. And then the second thing happens. You look for more evidence about that phrase. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've known someone for a long period of time, and all of a sudden they come out with something and you think, what in the world? Did not know that. And then you go, wow, really? And you recalibrate your view of them, hopefully for the better. And then you watch. And you begin to gather evidence. Listen, Genesis 126 is that kind of a statement by God. It's just thrown in there. Let us create man in our image, in our likeness. And then the Older Testament just takes off. Well, for me, when I read 126, that's a recalibrating text. It's a verse of Scripture that recalibrates how I view God. Suddenly, God is a we and us. And what you end up doing then is reading the Older Testament, looking for evidence to, to substantiate what God has said about Himself. I remember one time, here's a little story from my life. I was in Germany years ago on a train, and there was a guy that I sat next to a couple of times on the train in the morning. He got on at my stop, and he got off at the stop where I was helping a church in Munich try to redo some things in their church. And so we would sit next to each other, and he spoke fluent English, and so we're riding and talking and kind of got to know he was a professional, he was an engineer and that a whole bit. And one time when we were getting ready to get off the train, I said something about what I was doing. I said, he said, finally, he said, well, what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm helping a church, and usually that kills the conversation. But he said, I believe in God. Hmm, got off the train. What do you think I wanted to know next time we got on the train? So I'm thinking about all this kind of stuff, and he gets on the train, and he sits next to me again, and I said, you know, you wouldn't mind me asking, but last time we sat next to each other, you said that you believe in God. Can you explain that? He said, sure. He was an older man. He said, well, I was in Auschwitz. I was a Jew. 
I was a little boy, and God kept me alive. You talk about a recalibrating statement. And I'm looking at the guy. I'm thinking to myself, what do you say about God to a person like him? What would you ever say? So I let him talk. But the truth of it is, he became uncomfortable talking about that experience, and he began to talk a little bit about how God blessed him with a wife and blessed him with kids. But you know what I wanted to ask him about? I never got to. It was my last day. But I believe in heaven, I'll have the opportunity to ask him more. Now, I share you that story because it grips us. That's the text, Genesis 1.26. It changes everything. God is an us. God is a we. God is a trinity, and we've been created in His image. Now, very briefly this morning, we're going to take a look at three quick people in the Older Testament that will help us to understand the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit into the Older Testament. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right, let's go. Where we're going to begin is with God the Father in the Older Testament. Now, you could almost go anywhere if you understand the Older Testament, but I'm going to pick people so that you can attach your understanding to them. The first person that we're going to talk about is a guy named Abraham. God tests Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. We're going to get there in just a moment, but you can put the slide up on the screen if you will. Who is Abraham? Abraham was a man who was a shepherd, and God out of nowhere just comes to him and says this, hey Abram, his name was Abram at the time, listen, I'm going to cut a deal with you. If you will uproot from your people, you'll gather your close family together and you will follow me, here's what I'm going to do. I'll be your God and your people will be my people. And I'm going to bless you, and from you, I'm going to have a people, a nation that's called by my name, and you will become so numerous that the sands on the sea and the stars in the heaven are not enough in order to count the people that will come from you. Abraham's amazing. By faith, the New Testament says, he follows God So Abraham gets his stuff together, he's ready to leave, you can read this in the book of Genesis, and as he's exiting, just picture this, he's got his family, his flocks, and he's ready to leave, and he looks at the extended family and they say, where are you going? He says, I don't know. Why are you leaving? God told me. Which God? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. What did he say to you? He said, if I follow him. He will make me as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven, and He will be my God, and my descendants will be His people, and that's where Israel comes from. So picture this. Abraham has some pretty amazing events as you were to read through the book of Genesis, and then all of a sudden we get to Genesis chapter 22. And here's where we begin to see God the Father through Abraham. In Genesis 22... God tests him. In Genesis 22.1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, 
whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Wow. Let me be honest with you. Let me be blunt. I have one son. I have an only son. And I love him. And here I'm going to be really blunt. If it took the sacrifice of my son for you to go to heaven, you ain't going. <laughs> Not happening. I'll just be honest. You're going somewhere else. But here Abraham, stunning, takes his son, and you can read it in Genesis 22, and he walks along, and he says to his son, pick up some sticks, and he picks up his sticks, and he goes, Dad, what are these for? He said, it's for an offering. I'm going to make a sacrifice. And the son's smart. He's looking around going, where's the sacrifice? Isn't one. Abraham builds an altar, ties up his son, puts him on the wood that the son has carried, lays him there, gets out his knife to slay him, and the angel of the Lord comes in. Says Abraham, Abraham, because you would not withhold your only son, your one and only son, I'm going to bless you. Man, am I going to bless you. And you're going to have a people that are from you that will populate the world. I will be your God and your people will be mine. But I want you to picture this. Isaac was only the only son through Abraham, through his wife Sarah. If he would have sacrificed him, the show was over. The show was over. And Abraham knew that. And yet God said to him, take your only future and lay him on an altar and sacrifice him to me. Then we pick up the most famous verse in the entire Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one, and what? Only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What God the Father did not make, I, make Abraham do with Isaac, God the Father did with his one and only beloved son. He did it for you, and he did it for me. You see, when you look for God the Father in the Older Testament, you find Him in Abraham and the story of God's interaction between Him and the one that began the people of Israel. That's God the Father. Now, very quickly, we're going to move on to Jesus in the Older Testament. And the way we're going to view this is by looking at King David as a type of Jesus. Now remember, I said at the beginning, when you read the Older Testament, we read backwards through Christ, through the Newer Testament, into the Older Testament. And when you do that, you instantly, as you look for Jesus in the Older Testament, you come across this guy by the name of King David. Let me describe him to you. King David, ladies, is someone that you would have found extremely handsome that he was rugged and handsome. The guys in this room would not want to stand next to him. That's how it works. He was a brilliant man. 
He was the favored king of all of Israel's kings. He was the favorite. He was the second one. He became famous because he was the one that killed Goliath. So David goes out to battle Goliath, and when he does, he takes his sling, he kills the giant. And there was a Division I recruiter from a major university that saw him throw that rock and instantly recruited him onto his team. And that recruiter was a guy by the name of King Saul. King Saul was king of Israel because of Israel's rebellion. They wanted a king like Egypt. They wanted a king like neighboring countries. And they came to God and said, give us a king. God said, I'm your king. You don't need an earthly king. And they said, oh no, we do. And they rebelled against God. And so he gave them King Saul. Saul started out okay, but he ended horribly. Part of Saul's agenda near the end of his life was to kill David because he knew that David was going to sit on his throne. Eventually, Saul dies. King David, the beloved king of Israel, sits on the throne of the kingship of all of Israel, and he sits on the throne, and he does an amazing job. But as you look at King David through the lens of the Newer Testament and the lens of Jesus, as you look towards the Older Testament, there sits King David on the throne. And you hear things like this. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will never revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. Elsewhere in the Psalms it says this to David. God says to David, Here I make a horn grow for David, and I set, a, set up a lamp for my anointed one. King David is sitting on the throne, and Samuel the prophet says this to him. David, this is 2 Samuel 7.12, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever through him. There's other verses that speak about David. Here's one you're going to know. Isaiah 9.6. We read it every Christmas. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. How many of you have ever heard this text from Isaiah? Raise your hand. You know it. Reading on in verse 7, it says, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And then here's what the prophet Isaiah says. He will reign on David's throne and, and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it from this time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. Then you pick up Jesus' birth story. And in the birth of Jesus, Mary is with child. And the Holy Spirit through this angel comes to her. And the angel says to Mary the following, you're going to give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. 
He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? David. You see, when you look into the Older Testament, you see God the Father through Abraham. You see God the Son through David. Because as you read the first book of the Newer Testament, it says this about Jesus. He is the Son of David. The crowd cries out to Him and says, Son of David, have mercy on us. When the crowd leads Him in the triumphal entry, they're crying, Hosanna! Hosanna! Here comes the Son of David! And then in the book of Acts, the very first sermon ever preached in the Newer Testament, Peter gets up and he preaches a message and here's what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today, but he was a prophet and knew that God promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, and his name is Jesus. You see, when you look at the Older Testament, God the Father is found in Abraham. God the Son is found in King David. And lastly, and quickly, we find the Older Testament reveals to us the Holy Spirit. Here's the text that I would like to read for us. It says this, Numbers 11.25, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with Moses. And he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on Moses and put it on 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. By the way, it sounds a whole lot like the day of Pentecost. This is literally a precursor to the day of Pentecost, which my son preached on last week from the book of Acts, chapter 2. But I want you to notice what happens here when you look at the Holy Spirit in the Older Testament. It says that the Holy Spirit was on Moses. And God took some of that Spirit and He placed it on 70 elders. And the Holy Spirit was on them. And they prophesied and told of the future and shared things that could not be known unless God revealed them. And then if you were to read on in the Older Testament, you would find that the Older Testament reveals to us in 2 Chronicles 5.14 that the Holy Spirit came on people, but the Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple. In the, older, in, the, in the Older Testament. And 2 Chronicles 5.14 says this, that the priests in one day could not perform their service because of the cloud. The same cloud that was on Moses was now inside the temple. And the Bible says, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Then, We come into the Newer Testament. And remember, we read the Older Testament through the lens of the Newer Testament. It says in the Older Testament that the Spirit of God came on people like Moses, but the Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple. But when you come to the Newer Testament, here's what you find. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? One of the greatest transitions when you talk about the Older Testament to the Newer Testament is this. In the Older Testament, God's Spirit came on people. 
His Spirit was in the temple. But now through Jesus, it tells us in Corinthians through the Apostle Paul that now the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That when I say yes to Jesus, and you say yes to Jesus, I am no longer alone. But when I say yes to Him, the Holy Spirit now dwells in me. The Holy Spirit literally moves inside of me, and I become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain this briefly. I cannot begin to tell you the transformation that that inhabitation of the Holy Spirit brought in my life. I told you at the beginning that when I felt the call to preach, I was an introvert. I grew up on a farm, wonderful life in that context. We worked hard. How many of you were raised on a farm? Raise your hand really high. How many of you would never want to go back there again? Raise your hand really high. I thought everyone was raised on a farm. Everyone. I remember the to-do list that my dad would give us. He was a corporate executive. He traveled the world and left my two brothers and I to work the farm. And he would have these huge... I thought everyone lived that way. He was generous, though. He gave me a quarter a week for allowance. That was a joke, by the way. But here I was living isolated on this farm and just with the family and working hard. And the whole, I gave my life to Jesus as a preteen boy. But here's what I experienced. When I said yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, as dwelling within me, began to change me. Can I be honest about something? I didn't really like people all that much. How many of you know kind of what I'm talking about? Don't look at the person next to you, but you know what I'm talking about. You just, oh my goodness, you know, dealing with milk cows is just so much easier than dealing with people. Butchering chickens is so much better than dealing with people. You know, bailing hay, all that kind of stuff. And I can remember this, the sense of saying yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit beginning to dwell within me. And as He dwelt within me, I experienced something that I took note of as a preteen boy. I started loving people. It literally freaked me out. I was loving people. And then when I felt the call to ministry, it was almost like the Holy Spirit was on me as well as in me. There was something that happened that was supernatural. Listen, I remember when the call of ministry hit me. And I recognized that the Spirit of God was in me and on me for this call. I had shocked our college admissions person at the high school by how well I did on my SATs compared to my GPA. And so I went in and sat down with her, and she had never talked to me before. She said, wow, you did great on your SAT. She said, what do you want to do with your life? I said, well, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, it's now or never. I said, you know, I feel a call to be a pastor. And she said, that's a bleeping shame. That was encouragement from that person. But you know something? When you begin to understand that there's a God who's your father in the Older Testament... And he came to Abraham and said, sacrifice your son, give up your whole future. But he provided a sacrifice through a ram. But God, who's our father, 
gave His one and only Son for you and me. And the Holy Spirit in the Older Testament that came on people and allowed them to do incredible things is now the Holy Spirit that lives us in us and allows us to be incredible things. And when you look into the Older Testament, you see Jesus in the life of King David. But you know, here's something that's simply true. David is dead, buried, and in his tomb. I've been there in Israel and seen it, but I've also been to the tomb of Jesus and it's empty. There's a huge difference between what God is doing in the Older Testament through David and what He's done in the Newer Testament through Jesus. As we close out our time, I know this was a move and greet time where we met Abraham, we met these Old Testament people, we met Moses, we met David. But now, I want us to look at one final verse from Jesus. Can we put it up on the screen? Here's what the Bible says. Jesus talking to someone who knew the Old Testament well. He said, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus said this, these are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Wow. Jesus said to someone that had the first five books of the Older Testament memorized, He would have been able to close His eyes and quote to you the first five books of the Bible. Jesus said to him, you study the Scriptures because you think by doing that you will earn eternal life. And Jesus says, but listen, those Scriptures point to Me. And in Me, you will come to Me. And if you do, you will have life. Our little journey through the Older Testament into the Newer is for this purpose. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? Have you opened up your heart to Him and said yes to Him? Because I can stand here today and tell you that in Him is life. It's life. Let me put it this way. If you've been doing life your own way, I have a question. How's that working for you? How's that going? If you would say that you need Jesus and you want the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, the Bible never lies. It tells you the truth. That in God the Father, and in the Holy Spirit, and in Christ the Son, you can have a life that's incredible. You know what? Before I felt a call to ministry, I wanted to be a lawyer. Thank God, by His grace and His mercy, He called me into ministry. I have a lot of friends that are lawyers. They're brilliant people. That wasn't for me. What the Holy Spirit wanted to do in me and through me was unique to my life, and the same is true for you. Will you stand with me as we close out our time? You study the Scriptures diligently because you think in them you will earn eternal life. But these very Scriptures testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
I want to encourage you this morning as we close out our time. Would you open up your heart in this moment to the God of the Older Testament? Would you open up your heart to the God of the Newer Testament? It's the exact same God. And would you in this moment consider a God who so loved us that He did not withhold His one and only begotten Son, but He gave Him to us as a sacrificial gift so that you and I could be in right relationship with Him through what Christ has done for us on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is available to anyone who would say yes to Jesus. My question again is, have you opened up your heart to Jesus? Have you said yes to Him? I'm going to lead us in just a brief prayer. Then we're going to spend some few moments in worship, and then we'll exit with a blessing. But if you would like to accept Jesus, the prayer goes something like this. Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are, but I do know that I've been doing life on my own strength, my own thoughts, my own purpose. Jesus, that hasn't been going well. And so now I turn to you by faith, and I ask that you would forgive me of my sin, that you would cleanse me, I repent of the way that I was going, and now I turn towards you. I accept you. I confess with my lips and with my mouth that you have died for me, and that what you have done for me covers my sin. Holy Spirit, I ask you that you would now dwell within me, and you would give me a power to do life differently in you. Jesus, thank you so much for saving me and cleansing me and giving me new life in you. In Jesus' name, in Christ's name, let's worship together.
Let's sing it to the Lord together. Let's sing. to us. I pray that you would touch each heart. You would touch each life. God, I have the clearest sense that we need your Holy Spirit this week. So I pray that you would pour your Spirit out upon us, but also within us. Some of us are exiting a victory of our lifetime, and others of us are facing things we would have never signed up for. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The God of the Older Testament who reveals Himself through Jesus in the New Earth. Lord, now I pray a blessing over all of our congregation. Those that are here and those that are not. That You would bless us. That You would keep us. That You would cause Your face to shine upon us. And that You would give us Your grace, Your Holy Spirit, and Your peace. And we pray all of these things now. In Jesus' name. Christ's name we ask. Amen. You can remain in worship if you would like. There will be prayer down front. For those of you that are slipping out, please do so quietly. God bless.
Oh.